I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. This is episode 400 of Stageworthy, and this will be the last episode of this podcast. Stick around to the end of the episode for some thoughts from me about the podcast and why I'm choosing to end it now. My guest this week is Peter Hinton Davis. Peter is a Canadian theater and opera director, playwright, and educator. He joined me to talk about Coal Mine Theatre's Dion, the power of mythology, his life in the theatre, and much more. Here's our conversation. I have to say this is a, a, a bit of, uh, a, bit of a, a fan moment for me. Um, I was a fan of your interviews when you were at the, 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 the National Arts Center. Um, and so I was, a, every time, I was very, always very happy and excited when a new interview uh, would download. Um, and in fact, um, it's one of the things that made me think about podcasting in the first place. So thank you for, thank you for that. Um, now, a little while back, I had Stephen on, the, the, the libretticist for Dion, and he told us a little bit about what Dion is about, but I'm curious. It's always good to hear from different people what the what the show is about. Tell yeah. me what what Dion is about. Well, I think it's about the sort of central duality within human beings for freedom, for ecstasy, for liberation of our own identities, and a need for social order and need to live peaceably amongst each other. And the show pits those two things as sort of polarized opposites in the ancient myth of the Bacchae, where there's Dionysus, who's the god of intoxication, the god of duality, the god of wine, the god of theater, the god of transformation, of of confusion, of illusion, of all the things that when we have a drink, uh, does a good thing for us. Like it takes us out of our head. It takes us out of our overly rational self. And we have this sort of out of body experience. In contrast to that is this doomed city of Thebes that was founded by Cadmus and is now run by his grandson Pentheus, who in an effort to control a kind of curse of the city of people and uprising all over, legislates a very authoritarian, strict, rational, heady regime. 
And so Dion returns after many years to either perhaps free the people or exercise their own revenge. And it's a very, very ancient story that appears in many cultures. And like wine, where we need this ecstatic experience to take us out of ourselves, if we take it too far or go beyond what moderation might be, we can become addicted. We can become crazy. And so it's about those two forces within us and how they play out against each other, with each other, uh, in paradox and contradiction with each other. What was it that first drew you to this particular project? Well, uh, honestly, because Ted called me up and asked me if I wanted to do it. Like, you know, I've been a great admirer of Ted's for a really long time, and we're of a similar generation. But surprisingly, we had never worked together. Uh, uh, we followed each other. We're friends. Um, but we had never done a project together. And so it was during the great pandemic lockdown that uh, he called me up and said he was working on a rock opera version of the back eye called Dion. And I also love rock opera, too. I think it's a really uh, unrecognized great form, if not genre. And I'm, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Phantom of the Paradise, like Tommy, like these are incredible works that fuse a real populist form with a really epic and, uh, you know, uh, historical kind of uh, idea and storytelling. So I thought that was this great idea to take the back eye and rock opera and fuse them together. And for most of my career, I've had this great fortune of sort of uh, being primarily a theater director who from time to time gets asked to do operas. And I've done a lot of musicals and uh, have had that privilege of not being, you know, uh, cornered into one genre. And uh, I love what the form of opera and and musicals provide. And I also love the, the, the depth of what a play can explore. So the fusion of these things was really exciting for me as a director. And so... Uh, <laughs> I came on board very eagerly. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, when, when Stephen was telling the story, it seemed to him that things, I mean, he was still working on it. Things were happening very quickly in the background. Um, were you an immediate yes when Ted came to you or did you, did you take any convincing or? Um, no, but there's process, you know, you have to consider, are you the right person for it? Like as, as talented as I think, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm not right for everything. And uh, I wanted to be sure that the knowledge I have, the spirit I have, the process that I have is going to be right for the piece, especially with new work, you know, that uh, so you, you, you build a relationship, you learn each other. And uh, knowing of someone, being friends with someone is really different than working with them. You know, you have to be in the room. And so coal mine was really great about having we had a workshop in 2021 and another in 2023 and uh it was it was great to let that evolve more organically and uh 
each step of the production workshops, we would reassess, we would have conversation, we would respond and the piece would evolve and grow. And it felt like a really natural uh, partnership and part of that, that process. Felt, it felt natural. Now you mentioned, you know, trying to figure out if you're the right person for uh, the job of director of a show. Um, what kind of things are you drawn to that that you think like what what kind of things do you take into account for like am I the right person for this particular show? Well, uh, that's a that's a really good question. Like when it comes down to it, I have to feel like it could uh it's different uh it's something that i haven't seen before that i haven't done a lot of before i thirst new experience uh especially so as i get older uh sometimes you know uh, uh when i directed into the woods at stratford after that people oh you've got to do this on time you've got to do that something and uh, I, I listen. I would love to do another Sondheim, but that's not on my pursuit. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, the the Greek plays have eluded me. I've never been asked to do one. I've never been in a situation to. So I've been very interested in these ancient forms of theater, not as a history piece or as a museum, but how do they land on us today? And uh, it plays with this idea of tragedy, which is uh, a very uh, rarely done form in our own time. You know, we think about genre like comedy and tragedy, but actually, you know, what our contemporary theater is full of is irony, irony and satire. And uh, this has elements of irony in it. Uh, but it is a tragedy. So I was really drawn to what are the theater muscles to do that? What is the form of that? How do you fuse a very populist thing like rock music with a very ancient form? And, and the inspiration of it is only half the work because there's a brand new piece that Ted and Steve have created. So it's got all of that excitement and chaos of doing something brand new for the first time. But I'm also really curious about how do these ancient stories land in contemporary ears? How do they land in contemporary imaginations? Like, what does the Bacchae possibly mean to us today? And there are a lot of resonances and connections that really, you know, uh, theater is the Western traditions, uh, a festival of Dionysus. And so the whole, what is illusion, a world of reality that we live in. And where does tragedy sit in a contemporary time where we're very importantly looking at what is theater? What stories is it telling? Who is it representing? Uh, how does it speak uh, urgently, uh, necessarily to the world? So uh, it had all the right challenges for me. And uh, I, I honestly try to do that with every play I get asked to do. Uh, you know, and sometimes you take a job because you go, I want to work. That's the reason to do it. 
but more often than not, you've got to go through that. Am I the right person for this job? Am I the right director to bring this project to life? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You were talking about, about how, you know, these, these ancient pieces and how they land for us now and in our ears and how we, how we visually perceive them. I think that, that it's interesting, you know, some people say that you could look at Shakespeare and some people say Shakespeare has been overdone and it's not really relevant and things like that. Some people, um, but when you get to the Greeks and you get to the Greeks, they had a style of, of, uh, of, as we understand it, we think a style of performance that seems very presentational and very, uh, yeah. uh, 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 foreign to us. Um, and, and yeah. so it can be difficult to find the, the humanity in a piece that seems so, so distant. Um, yeah. Yeah. um, yeah. what kind of, I mean, again, this is not, this is not that this is a, a, a sort of like, it's a musical, a rock opera. Um, but what are the things that, that you see in those pieces that, that we do connect with, uh, even though they may seem foreign? Scale. Uh, icon, the kind of icon status of character, uh, and, and curiously rock and roll. Like when you think about the God of Olympus or something, you know, who have their immortal form, but have these kind of immortal capacities that people worship, that people fear, that people, uh, pray to, you know, uh, there isn't a huge difference in my head between, you know, Dion and Freddie Mercury or uh, Lenny Kravitz or Lizzo or Edith Biaf or even, you know, you can go like somehow musical icons embody something godlike, something ideal and express something that nobody else can. So it felt possible, like for the first few workshops, it felt like, oh, we're doing this walk opera adaptation of, or something like that. And that just fell to the wayside. Like, I just feel like we're doing the back eye, but we're using modern language. So the same spirit of a play, you might have a modern poet translated or put it into a, a vernacular that we relate to and understand. That's what the music really does. So it, it was this beautiful kind of fusion. And rock and roll, popular music is something that people have a visceral response to. So it sort of did away with it feeling uh, obscure or removed. And, you know, who knows how those ancient plays were really done. We have reports of them. We have a kind of a very dubious history of a lot of Western, white, uh, European uh reframing of that work to describe sort of the birth of Europe. I don't like, like it's interesting, the word classical that gets used to describe this is, is actually an 18th century word. And it's no surprise that the word class is embedded in classical. So I, it's a word I try not to use and think of these as ancient stories that have a lot of influence. And, you know, a big inspiration for me has been working with the cast in the two workshops and in this production of, of bringing people together of uh, different backgrounds and different ages to go, how does this resonate in you? How does this land in your body, your lived experience, your history? And it's always that 
collision, that connection, the two things, this ancient story and these modern people. And, you know, like as a director in my 60s now, I'm really interested in what speaks in theater to a, a younger generation. You know, I feel like I have uh, a lot of experience to share and to pass on, but it doesn't mean I'm necessarily smarter or my ideas are better. So it's really a key thing in the rehearsals of really seeing how ideas land in other people. So there's something very collaborative in that process too. Yeah, there's definitely, I think the, you know, it's, it's all, it, you know, you, we can have all of the experience in the world. Um, but I think that there are, there are, when we're working with people who are of different generations, we teach each other, right? We teach each other. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's how we, that's how we keep from, from having our, 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 our opinions, our lives, our, our, our minds stagnate yeah. by, by, by learning from each other. Yes. Right? And sometimes, you know, like we do plays that very speak to the world around us, that speak to our lived lives. And there's that that's an important part of what theater does. But part of the challenge in a piece like this is taking on something that is so removed from us. Like, you know, like there are scenes, okay, you're a prophet, you're half mortal. That's fine. You're cursed because you planted dragon's teeth and it reared up an army. Like, like the, the scale of it asks for a different part of our human, our imaginative inner god or goddess that is within us. And that's, that's trippy. And you don't want to get sort of generalized or appropriative or vague about it. You, how do you keep it real and how do you keep this scale that it demands? And, you know, like one thing I'll say about the back eye box, many things is unlike Shakespeare that is sort of overloaded. And I mean, with all respect, we've seen Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. Those, we've seen them many times. So they become all about interpretation. And, you know, I, I believe that an interpretation is something you arrive at rather than something you begin with. And the back eye is an open field because there are elements of it. There are qualities. There's a character here that like, will go, oh, yes, that. But we don't know it in the same way. We don't have the same expectation. And, you know, we've just began previews a few nights ago. And it's interesting with an audience to go, they're figuring out this story as we're telling it. They don't go, oh yeah, this is the part. Where they're they're learning this story, and so there's something fresh in that. Yeah, there's certainly something difficult about. I had some. I knew, was talking to somebody who was. Uh, uh, they performed some Shakespeare, and they were doing like the Dream in High Park. And there are people who come yeah. with their Shakespeare, and they want to follow along. Um, and there's yeah. so much expectation with people when people know the yeah. plans. Um, the, yeah. in some ways you're right. It's about, it becomes about them judging your interpretation of the play and how you're, how you're going to do it and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah. and it's, it's kind of fun to have something that is, uh, ancient, um, that we don't know or that is un, as unfamiliar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
like, you know, simply put, like every play was a new play at one point. And uh, it's hard, you know, the last 10 years I've been very uh, happily involved with the Shaw Festival. And it's a very different thing when you're doing uh, Pygmalion, which is a play that people know and have a very fixed idea of what it looks like when it's set, how it's interpreted. They, and you know, largely through My Fair Lady, not even from the, the real thing, from, is really different than doing uh, like a, an undiscovered play by Edith Wharton that nobody has ever read. And there are elements that are familiar from that world, but it's, it's the greatest treasure is to work on something that is got this newness to it and, uh, and yet a recognition factor that occurs. Yeah. There's so you were talking earlier about, about, um, the way that the classical has class in it and some of these, these ancient plays, uh, have a reputation of being for a certain class of people, like an upper class. But that's not how they were written. They weren't written for that. Most of the, the, the you know, we think about Greek plays and often we think about tragedies, but they're, they were not the comedies and everything. They were not for the upper class. Everybody went. Same for the, yeah. the, the, the theater of Shakespeare's time. It was not necessarily all for the, the upper class. Right. It's, it's for the, everybody. Right. And as soon as we take away that class aspect, there's something there for everybody and it can speak to or, us. And sometimes they have this beautiful plural kind of quality where they're speaking to people of different stations in life, different genders, different cultural background, different identities at the same time. So there's a lot of intersection in the audience that is invited in these stories, if you can get them right. Absolutely. There's no question in yeah. each history. Like, I mean, when I went to theater school, in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, I was taught things like, uh, you know, only titled people or rich people spoke verse and all the poor people spoke prose. <laughs> like it was so deliberately classes, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And there's an amazing thing in going to the theater and yes, seeing yourself, but also seeing people you're influenced by, people you that you have an opinion about, people that you have thoughts about, you see them as well. Yeah. And, that, and that's a beautiful quality in Dion. Yeah. I remember um, one of the one of my experiences performing Shakespeare. I was doing uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream and I was playing Puck. And one of the last speeches when suddenly um, it occurred to me that I wasn't, it wasn't like talking to nobody, right? The soliloquies, the little okay. speeches. You're, you're talking to the audience. And I... Yeah. I've heard, I've seen some some productions. I haven't been at them, but I've seen videos of them where the audience does talk back, like they did in Shakespeare's day, and that's yeah. a, a magical thing to 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 like re, to re, to remember and realize that this is not like there's no for there's no fourth wall yeah. here. This is like a, yeah. a a conversation with an audience, and I think that kind yes. of thing can break down the modern perceived wall between audience yeah. and 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 these ancient shows. Absolutely. And it's it's different with Shakespeare, too, because you have a very different language. And so you're almost entering into a world of translation because 
you know, there's always a little preoccupation with how clear it is, how uh, understood the language is, how much do you launch into the poetry of it versus the realism, where we don't have that on Dion because it's soft. So the the musical references are really familiar and present to us and in our ears. And so it allows the strangeness of the ideas to be magnified in a way. Like Shakespeare's so hard because it's kind of become a culture unto itself, yeah. you know, the whole world of it. Yeah. But uh, this is uh, is very unique in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I always think about Shakespeare as something that it's fun when you can like break that down and surprise that culture and do something yeah. they don't expect. Sometimes they get angry with you, but it's it's more exciting when you can sort of like sweep them away and yeah. talk to some other people. Um, yeah, like it's it's important to distinguish the difference between tradition and convention. Like there are tradition and there are uh, disciplines and there's a rigor that is required to apply to something that is historically based. So you've got to do a different kind of work to specify and locate what an oracle is, what a curse is, what the gods are, what, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a demigod is that, that's different than a realistic play. But that doesn't mean that you adopt conventions of things and go, well, you always do it this way or you always do it that way. Like the, the, the play sort of demands uh, an immediacy, a modernity to bring them to life. And, and that is, uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a great part of directing. Yeah. Now, you were speaking about about uh, earlier about Pygmalion and how people have expectations about how it's going to be presented. Yeah. But you uh, uh, directed a, a modern day setting of Pygmalion yeah. in 2015. Um, yeah. Did you find that people, audiences reacted to that? Was there pushback on that or was it did it make the people see the show in a different way? Well, it depends who you speak to. Like, there you go. There were people that loved it that went, oh, my gosh. I never thought of the play that way before. Oh, thank you. Like another people, how dare you? Like that, it, it makes no sense. You cannot do that play. And, and you know, and it, it came about rather innocently because I observed like when Shaw first wrote that play in 1914 and then revived it again after the first world war and then adapted it for the films in the thirties that every time Shaw revisited, uh, he kept updating it. So the kind of equipment that Henry Higgins had in 1914 was really different than the 30s. Of, you know, carriages turned into cars and all of that, which is not what Shaw always does. Like Shaw, on You Never Can Tell, is very strict about this play is set in the 1890s and must not veer from that. So with Pygmalion, I thought, well, could you do it now? And, and it was also related to why would I direct it? Like, to just do another production that had been done before the Shaw had done, I think, seven productions of Pygmalion at that point, I kind of went, well, if we're going to do it again, let's let's see, does that hold? What would it might be if it happened now? And, um, you know, all we changed was money values 
a few locations because locations in the play had changed their meaning in a hundred years or so. And we changed bloody to fucking. And, you know, you read all this stuff about that scene where, you know, Eliza says, stop bloody likely. And you read about it in 1914, people could believe it. And the laughter, the shock, the, and I thought you could never do that. Like, there's no way that moment is going to work by mm-hmm. saying bloody. And so we went to fucking and it stopped the show when she said it, when the beautiful Harveen Sandu, as Eliza Doolittle said, not fucking likely, the place stopped. It, did, like, it was very exciting and a very, to me, worthy experiment that is good for Shaw. Like Shaw mm-hmm. has been very entrenched in a kind of down happy kind of, always in period dress and and sometimes that's necessary but i think those plays if they're going to be revived are 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 worth opening up again yeah yeah absolutely i think there's a lot of plays you know um a doll's house tends to be that way and things like that they they become like so stagnant and like oh well this is so formal and this sort of thing and it's like how we yeah you need to sort of like dig into it dig into the dirt get it get the dirt yes. under your fingers to 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 yeah. make it mean something and to to have it not yeah. just a period or a museum piece yeah like i remember once you know doing i think it was comedy of errors or something at the nac and uh it was a modern dress production and uh you know in that play it's a comedy that pits the sort of wild Dionysian kind of spirit of Ephesus with the very rational ordered Syracusians and twins separated at birth and that these two sensibilities collide. And so I thought what a funner thing than to set it now and make this uh, Syracuse Toronto and make wild Ephesus Montreal. And so it was playing with something we all live in and can play with. And uh, someone in the audience came up to me after a preview and said, why can't you just do the plays the way they're supposed to be done? <laughs> well, what do you mean? Like, yeah. the way they're supposed to be done is speaking to convention, not to any kind of tradition or, or clue within the text itself. So, you know, if we want to revive a repertoire We have to keep it living. That is a really important thing. To canonize something is to kill it. Yeah. And to just turn the works of Shakespeare or Euripides or whoever into a trophy to put on the wall. Yeah. I want the real animal. I want to breathe with it to experience it. Yeah. There are some people who will say that Shakespeare should still be pumpkin pants and and neck and ruffs and things like that, and that is yeah, some people sure, some but, people and and sometimes that's a really cool way to do it, mm-hmm. like you know, going like looking at what our histories are or our history is is a an interesting exercise too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I would like to, to 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 sort of talk a little bit more specifically about you and your your life in the theater. Yeah. And I want to start with um, what first brought you to the theater. What what made you want to get involved in the theater, and how did that come about for you? Uh, well, um, I wanted to be an actor, and when I I think when I was young and saw the theater, 
I was really uh, inspired by a whole other way of the world could be in this world of heightened, heightened emotion and ideas. Uh, it was so attractive to me. It took me out of a kind of mundane experience. And yet at the same time, I also recognized the kind of bigger truth that it offered. It said to me, yes, this is what life could be. And uh, so I saw the actor at the center of that and really wanted to be an actor. And I, I went to uh, TMU, then Ryerson, and trained as an actor and, and uh, loved that time and really learned during that time that what I loved was rehearsing. I loved making it. I loved talking about how we would do it. I loved learning how people made success. I learned from the mistakes, from the risks, and that I didn't love performing so much. I felt kind of sad. As soon as the show went open, I saw all of my classmates go, yay, we could play it now. We're, rehearsals are over. And I felt, oh, I, I, really, I really missed that part. And so professionally, I, I worked professionally as an actor a little bit, but uh, I found myself more and more being engaged with directing and, uh, you know, uh, fell quite naturally into it because of this great interest I had in rehearsal. And then I thought, you know, aha, but the director is really the center of it. The actors have all the responsibility because they're on stage doing it, but Oh, the director gets to decide how we're going to do this, how we're going to rehearse it, what period we're going to set it in, what, like all of those questions. And so I dedicated myself very, very seriously to directing for a very long time. And then as I started directing more and more, uh, you know, you, you become so aware that a big part of that job is some problem solving. You're, you're always trying to find solutions for things or opportunities for things or ways of managing uh, great problems. And uh, the, the playwright, John Morrell, said, you know, like, yes, uh, directing is about solving problems, but playwriting is about creating problems that are worth that solving. And I went, aha, yes. And there's such a difference when you're working on a great text and you're given a really big challenge that's exciting rather than a not so strong text where you're fixing things. You're just trying to make it work. And so I became more drawn to playwriting and then integrated playwriting into my practice and my career and started writing plays as well. And then it kind of all came full circle about 10 years ago where like I realized, you know, what's really at the center for all of the problem solving and power a director might have all of the offers and initiations that the playwright offers is the actor is really at the core of it because the actor is the most living thing in the live theater. Like I can do very filmic scenic things with design. I can shape forms as a playwright I can, I can do many things, but what keeps live theater its most potent is the living actor with an audience. And so uh, I returned to the stage in 2015 and uh, playing basically myself in a play. But uh, it was a very uh, important 
uh, time because it, it it helps me to realize, oh, this is what I ask actors to do. This is what it feels like to be inside. And that, and you know, it's what I tell my company all the time is like, I don't see myself in some higher position, but I do see myself very central to the leadership of it. And the key thing is I'm outside of it. So I can see what the effect of something is, but the actors are inside of it. They can tell me a lot about what it feels like to be in this moment. And so it's a, a navigation, an exchange, a collaboration between what's inside and what's outside. So I came at it a long way and, and, uh, you know, directing is really my, my heart. That's really where I live most. But I love playwriting too, and I love acting as well. And I love designing. I love design. <laughs> um, I love it all. Now, at some point uh, in 2005, uh, when you took over as the artistic director of English theater at the NAC, um, had artistic directing occurred to you before that? And how did that no. come about? Uh, I was asked, uh, I, no, no, not, I wasn't offered the job right away. I was asked. To apply, and my and my first response was no, I don't want to do that. And then, as I went to the interviews and thought about it, uh, I was what was I? I don't know, four forty two or something. I was still had lots of energy, and and uh, I I really really thought this is an opportunity I I cannot turn down. And so I, I went for it, and I and I did it for seven years, and I kind of jokingly referred to it as my uh community service my i uh it's it's a very hard job it's very easy to sit outside and criticize and being an artistic director is a huge responsibility uh, and i have such high esteem for anybody who does it whether it's the national arts center or a smaller indie company it's a huge huge job and um you know i did it for seven years i learned tons and got to at the nac work with artists all across canada and internationally and uh but i also learned i'm not i don't have that fire as an artistic director that i see in others you know i look at chris abraham i go i don't know how chris does it i don't know how he gets such creative stimulation or from that kind of pressure. And, you know, there are many, Jill, Jill Kylie, like incredible. Like, there's so many great uh, artistic directors we have. But uh, I went, no, this is not my true. I was exhausted. <laughs> I was too tired. I was like having a nervous breakdown. And all I wanted to be was in rehearsal. That's, mm -hmm. that's really. And so seven seasons was lows for me. And I think healthy for a theater. I mean, mm. there used to be more change, but now change is so hard that we see people in artistic directorships for 15, 20 years. I think it's good, especially the big subsidized institutions should have a change of leadership, a change of voice, a change of perspective. So like, you know, it's so exciting to think about you know, Marty Meriden being there, and then I came in, and then Jill Kylie came in, and then Nina Aquino came in. It's so, and I, it's so lucky to direct plays and all of those tenureships. 
And I was just there in the hall with Nina and seeing how Nina has flourished and what Nina is doing to the NAC is so exciting. That's what it should be. It should be this continuum of passing baton of exchanging and, and, and the theater stays alive in that way. Yeah. There has been a, a in some theaters and some, especially some of the larger ones um, where somebody will, uh, the artistic director will leave and they will go to somebody who sort of served under them. And so it almost becomes a continuation of the previous administration um, in some ways, it's like you, you sort of see the continuation rather than sometimes it, by bringing in somebody completely new with a different vision who yeah. wasn't subject to the previous uh, administration yeah. can can come in with their own vision and shake well, it up a bit. Yeah, I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. And I'm not just equivocating myself out of a a controversial opinion because it is very hard and, and risk is a huge thing with theaters and it becomes increasingly so particularly post-covid so if a theater feels it's best that someone has had a kind of succession plan you know that they they know how the institution works like to be very honest the first two years of me at the nac was learning how the plays were Mm. the learning curve was so steep so you kind of go i want to do this and then i Oh, I had no idea it would cost this. I didn't know how this worked. I didn't know how it worked with unions. I didn't know how, like, so, you know, of the seven years, I feel the first two, I was learning what I was doing. And then I had two or three that were really good. And then I hit this ceiling going, okay, if I'm going to stay, I've got to really stay. Right. And am I the person for that job? There you go. There's yeah. that again. Yeah. But, like I say, like I don't really hold up my artistic direction as exemplary <laughs> because I, I did it because I had the opportunity and the passion and I deeply committed to it, but I don't have the fire for it, the love for it that many others do. Mm-hmm. And it's a rare, rare quality. Yeah, for sure. Now, while you were there, we sort of mentioned at the beginning, you you implemented or or the the interview podcast or the interviews yeah. uh, were, were happening. And I think they were done um, either before or after a performance. Um, yeah. Like in a, in, a, in a room and people from the show would come and, and there were audience members there. Um, yeah. How did that come about? Was that something that, that, that was your idea or did somebody come to you with it? And how did it become a podcast? Uh, yeah, it was a bit of, uh, I mean, there's always been a kind of leading thing with, like, this was back in 2006. So the whole notion of a podcast and all of that was uh, not commonplace like it is now. And uh, the wonderful Laura Denker, who was uh, the head of marketing and public, like, she, she had this idea and she was so engaged. We'd have you know, audience events and meeting the subscribers and that kind of thing. And she went, this is interesting. Like we should, we should be able to share this with the public or the kind of things that happen, you know, in the first day of a rehearsal where a play is introduced to the company, how could we open the door to that for a larger audience, both and the region, but also nationally. And uh, so that's how that idea was, was born. And we did the, like uh, before the matinee after opening. So there was an audience that would come and some of them about to see the play that afternoon or some who had seen it in previews or on opening. And 
you know, it was a great opportunity to just uh, have a conversation with the artists that were there and talk to them about why they do what they do and, uh, and give a kind of human face to people that they just know as names or just think uh, don't have that kind of connection to an audience. I think it's always fascinating when we can show our audience a little bit behind the curtain. Um, I yeah. think to audience members, whatever happens in the rehearsal hall, in the dressing rooms, in the space behind the stage is magic. Um, yeah. And like there's a little bit of me that likes to keep the curtain too. Sure. Because yeah. there's a magic to that. But I agree. I do like uh, sharing that because it's always interesting. People. You know, people have interesting insights. They they have sometimes don't know how much time gets spent doing a set change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or they go, "Do you really do much of a show during previews?" And I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> I've seen shows change radically in previews." Yeah, yeah. I was I was an usher at a at a at a, one of the Mervis theaters uh, during a show that was oh, yeah. uh, previewing, and it was fascinating to to be an usher in the room. And see it change from night to night. Oh, Sometimes yeah. massive changes. Whole songs would disappear and re be replaced with a new one. Between it was fascinating yeah. to see how much actually goes into yeah. uh, that process. Yeah. Oh, it's, it it really is. And, the, and the, we learn the play with an audience. We have to learn it with them. And so uh, that's the biggest thing. Now with Dion, there have been I think two workshops of the play before uh, this. Yeah. Um, and of course, workshops uh, are, are, are you know a way to learn the play as well. Whether um, sometimes they're just without an audience, and sometimes there's a, an invited audience. Um, as this show progressed through its process um, of, of 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 writing and, and workshop and rewriting and workshop and reworking, and now that it's that it's about to be uh, uh, presented or it's being presented uh, in front of an audience in its its fully realized form. Um, how has this show, what kind of changes have been made while this show has been uh, going? And what, oh, what kind of things shoot. do you learn in, in a workshop of a show like this? Well, I think like the first iteration was more ironical. It was more of a pastiche on the old story with a, like it, it was, it had a more of a commentary to it. And it was really a song cycle. So there were a set of songs that were great songs, but the narrative was kind of uh, a bit more musical. And uh, the second workshop really focused on what the story was. And so uh, a lot of new songs got added. The decision, like it, we used to sort of speak some and sing some like a musical. We really committed to it being a rock opera. So it's all sung. There's a, there's a few rap songs in it that are spoken but it's very in a musical way. Uh, so the narrative really came into play. And then as uh, making different decisions about casting and how to, how to, how, what influence that makes on it, uh, that really grew. And then every workshop had a rewrite that followed. And then rehearsal is where you really get down to it. You're really opening it up because it's a kind of honeymoon to a workshop because you hold on to possibility. But when you get into rehearsal, people go, okay, I'm going to have to actually perform this. So 
you get a bit uh, more rigorous in that way. And uh, not that people were not rigorous in the workshops, they certainly <laughs> were. But, you know, you could go, sure, I can let this be a bit loosey goosey, where your rehearsal, you want it to be more specific. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that the show has seen uh, some preview audiences. Um, yeah. What, what has surprised you about the audience reactions to the shows as they've, as they've sort of seen this fully realized show for the first time? Well, that they don't know the story. That has been wild. And that tragedy is rare. And that it's, it's wild to be in the coal mine, which is a very intimate space. So you don't even have the distance of it being removed, like the audience is removed from the action. Like, like in Goldman, you're right in there. It's it's intimate. So it's intense. It's very immersive. It's very, it's very trippy. And so to have people come to it cold and not necessarily go, okay, we're going to go see the bad guy. They go, oh, we're going to see a rock opera. It's going to be fun or whatever. And then go, whoa, it's so they're surprised and they're uh they're they're contending with it that's what i find really interesting and then we've had two previews and each audience very different so mm -hmm. it will be different every night yeah yeah that is that is that's Which is amazing like you do the same show the same songs the same actions but they land in people so differently mm. Because the audience is different, and that's sort of the theater thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's, that exactly. group of people will never assemble, so they will never react to this way yeah. again. So yeah. those, those yeah. things. Yeah. 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 Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me uh, this evening. I really You're appreciate you giving me your time, and uh, and I've been an admirer of yours for a while, so it's a real pleasure to have spoken to you. Um, thank you so much. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is the final episode of Stageworthy. Before I get into why I'm ending the podcast, I want to say that it has been a privilege to host this podcast and to talk to all the artists I've spoken to over the eight years of this podcast. In 400 episodes, I've talked to over 800 guests, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes in groups, give or take some repeat guests. When I started Stageworthy in 2016, I was inspired by theater podcasts I'd heard that covered the U.S. theater scene, and I wasn't seeing much of that in Canada. There was also the fact that there wasn't a lot of theater coverage here, and Canadian theater artists rarely got the opportunity to be interviewed in any media. My goal with Stageworthy was to elevate the voices of Canadian theater makers, to give theater lovers a chance to hear from the artists they see on stage, and to help the artists get heard by their fellow creators across the country. I wanted to share the talented artists we have in I wanted to share the talented artists we have in this country with the country. I made a commitment when I started to put out an episode every week. And with the exception of a couple of times when I put the podcast on hiatus, I did that as challenging as it sometimes was. And I've now done it 400 times. So why am I choosing to stop now? There are several reasons. For one thing, I'm tired. 
Eight years is a long time, and 400 episodes is a lot. All while balancing a demanding full-time job, my own writing and performing, as well as a personal life. When I started Stageworthy, I wanted it to be as low impact to my life as possible, so I rarely edited the conversations and would just tag on an intro and an outro. But even with that, there's finding guests, booking time with them, doing the episode, and even the little editing I do takes time. And I create images for each episode, so I guess it wasn't as low impact as I ultimately wanted it to be. But all of that is still a lot of time that I am not getting paid for. And while I'm putting this effort into Stageworthy, I'm cutting into the time that it could be spending working on my own projects. Also, over the eight years of doing the podcast, I've never made enough money to cover the costs of the podcast, let alone pay myself for all of the time. I think I estimated the time uh, cost. It would take me maybe an hour and a half for each episode, maybe two hours for each episode. And that is just the editing time not the time that it took to find the guest and record it and all of the other stuff. So I never got paid to do the podcast. All of the costs of keeping this podcast going from equipment to audio hosting to website hosting, recording services, and everything else that I've done to, to try to keep the podcast going, all of it came out of my own pocket. And I, I just, I can't keep doing that. And there are things that I really did want to do with Stageworthy. I would love to have been able to explore theater scenes across the country, to actually go and experience theater around Canada and talk to as many of the people who make it as I can. I also thought of doing a series on the history of theater in Canada, a look back to understand the present. There were other ideas too, but each of my ideas for special series or projects would take more time than I can give and would require more money to do well. So ultimately, I'm going to say goodbye to Stageworthy so that I can concentrate on my own work. I have loved getting to meet all of the artists I've interviewed. Every one of them is an incredible artist. And I encourage you to go back into the past episodes and get to know an artist whose name you don't know. The archive will remain on stageworthy.ca and on all the platforms you currently listen on. Perhaps there will be an opportunity to do something with Stageworthy later on. Maybe a, a pop-up podcast now and then. Maybe something else. I, I don't know. But this is the end of Stageworthy as a regular podcast. If you've been a listener of Stageworthy, whether a regular listener or an occasional one, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's been my genuine pleasure to present this podcast. Thank you for listening. And to each and every one of my guests, thank you for making the podcast something worth listening to. <laughs>